Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Jim Meskimen is a professional actor, comedian, and impressionist, and those are only a few of his talents. Jim is also the son of America's favorite mom, Marion Ross, who played Mrs. Cunningham, or commonly called Mrs. C, on the hit TV show, Happy Days. Jim's acting credits include the movies How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Apollo 13. He has also appeared on television shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Friends, and Whose Line Is It Anyway? Jim is also a gifted voice artist, and his work includes the creation of voices for characters in video games. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, Jim will talk about his career and experiences that have shaped the man he is today. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Jim Meskimen to Your History, Your Story. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, James. Good to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show because uh, you're a real talented guy and there's a lot to talk about. So I'm going to jump right in. Jim, can you tell us where you were born and where did you grow up? I was born, apparently, they tell me I was born in Santa Monica. I have a very dim recollection of what the zip code was at the time. And uh, I, I grew up, my parents lived in Santa Monica and uh, we moved to uh, Studio City out here in the valley. And uh and then quickly, my dad got a job in a place called Tarzana, California. And he was a uh, working as a bank manager, which was n- not probably, he was not terribly well suited for that. <laughs> but he sort of, uh, you know, gave in to having a job job and being a, a good provider for the family. And so he became a bank manager. In his heart, he was an artist. He was a, he loved poetry, he loved Shakespeare. He loved uh, the guitar, played guitar very well and sang. So it was probably, you know, one of the worst decisions of his life to become a bank manager. But in any case, it brought us to Tarzana, California, which is actually where I reside to this day. So it's a little <clears throat> suburb outside of Los Angeles, and it's named after Tarzan because uh, the very successful fiction writer Edgar Rice Burroughs had his estate here. In fact, I believe the whole town was his estate at one point or another. It's been all parceled off and sold off now. But um, yeah, that's that's where I live. I've spent a good deal of time here. It's interesting because I'm right now, I live in the house that I grew up in. So yeah, so do I. You do, the same house. Same house, yeah. Oh, that's cool. That is so cool. <laughs> so you've got this DNA of uh, an artist's DNA on your dad's side. And right. let's talk about your mom. Your mom is... America's mom, Marion Ross from Happy Days, and of course, a lot of other work your mom did. But tell us about your mom. Thank you. She's uh, she's kind of America's mom. A lot of people consider her to be, you know, one of the one of the parents that raised them, and uh, which is funny because she's just on a TV show. But but they feel that way about it. They feel a lot of a kinship for her because she portrayed Mrs. C in Happy Days for uh, eleven seasons, which is a good long run, and. Uh, it definitely changed our lives you know, to have that that opportunity. So yeah, mom is uh, she's uh, still around. She's uh, very happy. She's enjoying her retirement. She's just turned ninety four, not too long ago, and uh, gives her regards. Have you ever spoken to her? Interviewed her before? No, but there, there I think there might be a possibility I might get to speak with her if she's uh, willing and able. That'd be great. We'll see about it. Yeah, she, I many people that I talk to have said, uh, tell me that. Oh, you know, we just we had your mom on the show a few years ago. Like, <laughs> she's paved the way for me in many ways. But she was a um, a terrific uh, a terrific sort of mom to have for me, and very different from Marion Cunningham. Most people think, well, she must have been great to be raised by Mrs. C. But I wasn't raised by Mrs. C. In fact, nobody was raised by Mrs. C. <laughs> she's a complete construct. But I was raised by Marion Ross, who was a scrappy, um, very energetic person who really uh, enjoys the game of life and uh, and plays to win and also takes a great deal of responsibility for her family. 
So my parents split up, unfortunately, when I was about eight. So uh, my mom took the reins and really raised my sister, Ellen, and I, and um, and also built her career. I mean, looking at it now from the advantage of time and experience that I've had, I look back at a person who decides to, by herself, raise two kids and pursue an acting career as being high adventure. And not everybody has the guts for that, but my mom did. And not only had the guts for it, but brought it off very beautifully and became, I think, probably a bigger star than she even imagined possible. You know, she had uh, a lot of a lot of high goals. She wanted, you know, she grew up in in Minnesota. She would go to the uh, the movie theater there in her small town. I don't think it was even in the town that she lived in. I think she had to go to another small town nearby where they had a movie theater, <laughs> and she would see these effervescent incredible beings that populated the truly silver screen back then and it was like peering in a window at some alien race of people who had somehow transcended this world and become you know demigods of, of one kind or another and i think she looked at that with a lot of uh interest and ambition and just a, a drive to attaining that kind of presence in the world. And this is basically what she prepared herself to do. She went to acting school. She went to college and did plays. She did plays in the community theater in San Diego, where she grew up and eventually got somebody to take her for screen tests at the 20th Century Fox and Paramount and became a contract player, uh, which just takes a lot of chutzpah and hustle and not doing other things, you know, not socializing so much, not getting all involved with, uh, I don't know, all the trivialities of life that a lot of us get kind of sucked into. So she was very driven, very ambitious, and and her life has been a, a kind of a miracle, really. And, and she's, to this day, she just can't believe what she accomplished. She looks around at her beautiful home that she created, which is called Happy Days Farm. Uh, it's not a farm, but there are many happy days there. And, and uh, she's really in, enjoying what she has created and and set a great example for us, for my sister and I. My sister's also a, a writer producer and uh, also a very funny lady who was a, a great improviser and a, a wonderfully comedic actress and decided to to go into writing and producing. And she worked on a little show called Friends. She won, won an Emmy for that. Might have heard of that one. And uh, my, my sister's great. She usually tries to shoehorn me in <laughs> to the shows that she's working on as a guest star and, and I've got to work on several projects that she's worked on. So that's, that's kind of the short, the short story of my mom and, uh, and what she's meant to me. Oh, what a, what a terrific lady. And of course I remember that show so well. And uh, I, I think about the you know, typical like fifties, sixties mom, a, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, in my opinion, maybe a little more personality than the, the mom on Leave it to Beaver, but sort of that same era that you get this this flavor of this mom who sort of sort of ran things <laughs> in the house. And that's great. So let's talk about that time that your your mom was on Happy Days, 11 seasons. Were you ever able to actually go to the set uh, at all and see what was going on? Did you interact in that way at all? Oh. Frequently, frequently, as often as I could, because it was, as you can imagine, a kind of a magical place, especially when the show became a hit. It was a place where I wanted to be. Uh, I had some kind of quiet desires to be an actor. Uh, I was very shy and it was very daunting. And it seemed like it seemed like a place where a lot of people were having a lot of fun, but they were all grownups pretty much except for a few people like Aaron Moran and, but all the boys were a little bit older than I was Ron Howard and, and Anson Williams and Don most and Henry Winkler were all about five, six, seven years older than I was. So I, I didn't feel like, wow, this is something that I can just, you know, I, I had a great desire to get into it without having done any of the preparatory work, like learning how to be an actor, uh, being a, a responsible enough person to build a career. I didn't, <laughs> I was lacking those little things. Uh, so also the show had already been cast and it was a running concern. Uh, but I did get into 
actually an episode, which has turned out to be one of the more famous episodes of Happy Days, not because of my contribution, but because of its content. And that's when the Cunninghams go to Los Angeles, they go to Hollywood. I think it's called, I think it's called the Cunninghams go to Hollywood. And that's the one where Fonzie uh, jumps the shark, which has become a, a phrase in in America, uh, <laughs> describing, you know, when a show or a, has gone so far past its expiration date that it's resorting to all kinds of stunt casting and other peculiarities to attract people's attention. But I was in that episode. I'm a kid on the beach who runs by and, and says, they got a shark out there and uh, Marine land's going to come and pick it up. It's all penned up out there. It's hilarious. That's perfect. Were you excited for that? I was, I was nervous. And, uh, you know, to this day I have a regret because I, um, I was by, by that point, I was about 17 years old. The show had been on actually it was in its fifth season. So it's it's the the accusation that it, it had, in fact, jumped the shark was not accurate and because it still had another six seasons to go and was quite vital and a, still a very big hit show. But I, I knew everybody pretty well at that point. I knew the director very well. I knew all of them were like a kind of a surrogate family to me. And um and the guys and you know i'd been to the set often and they knew me as a kid who drew cartoons and, and mom I, I don't know who she who she had to pay off to get me in the show i didn't audition for it i just found myself on the beach you know with this role with the director's son andy paris jerry paris's son we both had this little cameo in it i think there were quite a quite a few little examples of nepotism in that particular episode because you know you could get anybody on the beach and just stick them in a stick them in a bathing suit and they could be part of the show. But I have a regret because I actually thought of a gag and I didn't do it, you know, it, it, because I was a little bit timid and I was, when you're on a set and you haven't worked in Hollywood very much and you see, you know, the dozens and dozens of people that are there operating the cameras and the lights and the sound, and it's really a, an army of people. And, and you're kind of hyper aware that, wow, this is costing somebody a lot of, a lot of money. Uh, I don't know who's paying for it here, but somebody's paying for this. You know, you don't feel like you can interrupt that. You feel like you want to just contribute to the, the smooth progress of that freight train. But I had this idea that um, of a funny line to say instead of my line. So I was going to run on. At, I, I think it's Don Most is there and, and, and Anson on the beach. And uh, they're seeing a bunch of people run run to the water or run away from the water. I forget. I've got to watch this show now. And uh, Don says, hey, what's happening? He stops me and Andy. And I say, uh, there's a shark out there. Uh, they got it penned up until Marine Land can come and pick it up. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I said, there's a shark out there. Uh, they've got it penned up out there until Gary Marshall can come up with a spinoff. <laughs> Perfect. And I, I got too timid to do it. I should have done it because I realized now it would have been, okay, all right. Everyone, a couple of people would have laughed and it would have been a moment. And then they would say, all right, now do it right, you idiot. You know, it would not have broken Paramount <laughs> Studios for me to do another take. I don't think so at all. But hey, you could have, hey, you, that could have launched your career right then. Could have launched, who knows? My, the whole, you know, it's like the trajectory of my life would have changed completely. But uh, it's like stepping on a butterfly a million years ago. But uh, there you go. Didn't well, let's talk about the trajectory of your life, because you just mentioned that you were the kid who drew on the set. Yeah. So you found out you had this sort of talent for, for drawing. What happened with that? That kind of moved you into your early part of your career, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how much talent I had. I had a, an affinity for drawing. I, and I, you know, I became very quickly in my youth. I remember when I was three or four people talking to me, oh, Jim, that's Jim, the artist. And I liked having an identity. Every kid does. I mean, you know, you're you're Jeff, the football player. You're, you know, Karen, the 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 uh, gymnast or the dancer. You know, so you know, I liked having an identity, and I did like to draw. And it was a way for me to kind of process the physical world and ideas I had. And my mom was great in this regard. And I, I think this is where I had an advantage over a lot of people is that I had a mom who, when when I was drawing would say, oh, that's wonderful. And she would say, here's here's some shirt cardboards. Remember shirt cardboards? Yes. Uh, here, you can draw on these, you know, and here's some pens. So I was always encouraged 
to draw. And I was admired for it and given praise and encouragement, even though, you know, probably for the first <laughs> five, six years, it was garbage. But the fact that I was attempting, you know, and, and if if you've your listeners who have raised children know that, you know, kids get interested in something and they start to get to work on it. And uh, that is what their true interest is because you haven't forced them to do it. Obviously, it's impossible to force a kid to be interested in something. We've all tried. It, it doesn't really work. But when they do discover something that they are engaged with and, and want to explore, then it's a good idea to encourage them to do that unless it's obviously dangerous or going to burn the house down or something like that. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I was um, allowed to express myself and explore in that way for years. And it eventually turned into my first career. Let's talk about your first career because uh, you and I had spoken before and you mentioned that you worked for Rankin and Bass. Those are two yeah. names that I'm very familiar with as a kid and the Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer and Frosty, the snowman. How did you land that job? And what was that like? Well, I had worked for another studio that you'll recognize called Hanna-Barbera, another two gentlemen. Mm. Yeah. Interesting couplings of, you know, important artists, gentlemen in my life. Uh, and uh, Hanna-Barbera, again, this this came about from my mom because she, I think, was I had come home from college. I was despondent in college. I, you know, I did one or two semesters and I was like, I, I can't take this. I'm so I miss my girlfriend. I miss I just feel out of sorts. I don't want to be here. So I went back home and I was laying around the house not doing much. So my mom conspired to get me active and busy, which she was very good at doing. And uh, she got me into a an evening class at Hanna-Barbera. I don't know who she talked to or who she knew. But this, again, changed the trajectory of my life because I did like to draw. And I was I was I had designs on being a professional cartoonist, illustrator. And she got me into this night class at Hanna-Barbera where they would train you loosely, but they would train you on the various departments in the, in an animation studio, how to do the backgrounds and the layouts and character design and in-betweens and all, all these different jobs that used to be done at, a, at an animation studio now are probably mostly automated. But uh, anyway, so I went to that class. And from that class, I must have made a good impression because I got hired to first do a like a coloring book. And uh, then I got hired on, they asked me, would you like to join the staff here? Because there's a, there's a need for a, a storyboard assistant to work on this show called Jenna of the Jungle, which was being done by a guy named Doug Wildey, who, who uh, and this is Doug Wildey. Whenever I talk about Doug Wildey, I got to do his voice because he was a great guy from New York who wore a kind of a fisherman's cap. You know, those, uh, you know, those kind of uh, trout fishing cats that McLean Stevenson wore in, in M.A.S.H. And Doug Wildey hired me to be an assistant storyboard artist to a guy named Don Rico who had done Captain America comic books and was by that time a pretty old guy, but a, a sexy old guy. He was like a really ripped and uh, dashing and he wore like a black silk shirt. And Don Rico was awesome. He was like a, a cartoon character himself. So for a few months, I was a storyboard assistant. I really didn't know what I was doing, but they were very kind and patient with me. And um, years later, when I went to New York City, uh, I was trying to get work as a freelance artist, and uh, there was a, a woman that took me up to Rankin Bass. She was kind of a rep, and she said, uh, Rankin Bass is looking for someone to do storyboards for a new series they're doing called Thundercats. Oh, yeah. And so I went up there, and based on my minimal experience as a storyboard assistant, not even a storyboard artist, you know, not a person that originates the, the thing, uh, I got a job from Jules Bass to to do the storyboards of uh, Thundercats. Wow. What a big leap, huh? It was way too far for me to leap. And I, I really panicked because I realized that once I got the job, I realized, boy, I really want this job and I really want this paycheck every week, but I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> oh boy. And I, I'm going to try really hard. And so I tried really hard. And uh, unfortunately, I, I really kind of crashed and burned. But to his credit or to my internal gratitude, Jules Bass said, you know, we're going to take you off storyboards and we're going to put you on a character design. And I just I could have kissed his feet at that point. I probably should have, because that was something that I actually could do to some degree. You know, I I'd drawn and created characters all my life. 
just on my own lights. I just enjoyed that. I and as an actor, I I like to personify characters and I could create these interesting characters that had a lot of life in them. So that is what I did for Thundercats for about a year for the entire run of of uh, 125 episodes of Thundercats. So when did you start to realize that you also had a a talent and a an interest in voice acting? Well, I was kind of uh I kind of unaware of it as a job, you know, I, it was not a big part of my mother's career to do voice acting. And, um, I, I hadn't witnessed it. I didn't really think about it. Like, I think a lot of people that watch cartoons or listen to the radio don't maybe now more than then, but we don't necessarily think about the process of it. Right. Uh, somebody has to go into a recording studio. Somebody has to write the script. Somebody has to, you know, perform that, that thing. So I didn't really have a lot of awareness of it really. I remember, gosh, at Hanna-Barbera when I worked there, I remember walking down the hall and, and bumping into this gigantic person coming out of the recording studio who was Ted Cassidy. Ted Cassidy was the actor who portrayed Lurch on the old Adams Family show, and he did a lot of voiceovers for Hanna-Barbera, I think. And he was just this very tall, <laughs> daunting figure, you know. I'll never forget that instant uh, but when I worked on uh, Thundercats, of course, I became aware that, oh, there's this whole assembly line. You know, there's the writing of the script. There's the recording of the script, which happens very early. And then there's, you know, designing characters and there's all the uh, grunt work that goes into actually animating them and bringing them to life and coloring cells and all that stuff that they used to do. So I became aware that, oh, there's this moment when people go into a studio and they have to they have to voice these characters, you know. And and I at that point in my career in New York, I, I had begun to audition for radio commercials and, and even some little bit of animation. So I was aware that, oh, this is a field, you know, this is this is something that interests me as well. And it's different than than having to draw for a living because you don't have really any external tools there's no pencils and pens and pieces of paper it's all just kind of your ideas and your vocalizations so i i remember very well going to uh they said do you want to go and see the guys uh, record the thundercats episode and i said yeah i would like to get out of the office and go see that so i went down and i remember i i witnessed them having such a good time these actors and uh, they were all of them very seasoned pros and they'd already done quite a bit of work on Thundercats and uh, and other shows. And I saw them horsing around, doing funny voices, making each other laugh and and making a living. And I thought, hmm, this may be this maybe is a better path. It sounded pretty good to me. So I uh, I began to consider that as like a, a goal, you know, to get into that. And again, Rankin Bass helped me to do that. They were very nice there, especially Jules Bass, who ran the place. And uh, and Lee Doniker, who was his assistant, and and they indulged me a lot. They were like, you know, if you got to go to an audition during the workday, that's fine. Just get your job done. You know, like, well, that's fantastic. So I I worked in Midtown on Fifth Avenue near Fifth Avenue and Fifty Third Street. I would dash out and do auditions at lunchtime. I even dashed down to SNL and did a piece of artwork for them one time. Really. Yeah, the uh, the uh, Michael McKean and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer were guest starring on. They were hosting SNL, and they had this group of which the world was pretty unaware, I think, at the time, called the Folksmen, which was their folk uh, singing tribute band. <laughs> they they portrayed these crazy folk singers, and part of the show was about them, and they needed to have a mock up of a record album that they'd done that was kind of in an old fashioned style and they needed portraits of these characters. I mean, they didn't even have the characters quite designed yet. They didn't have like the little beards and the, the things all set up yet for me to work from. But I went down to 30 rock and went up in the elevator and I drew quick portraits of those three actors, which they used for a, um, a record album uh, for the show for SNL. So all that to say that Rankin Bass was very nice and kind to me. They knew I was an actor. They'd come to some of my improv shows and they, they never tried to shut me down. They were always very encouraging. I've been very lucky in that. And I realized with my mom, with my first major employer, they were all just fine on me, you know, pursuing my other artistic goals. That's great. So let's talk about voice acting a little bit. What kind of, uh, 
skills do you have to work on to be a good voice actor? Is it just a natural ability or do you have to really train for it? Do you have to, you talked about your artwork developing over time. Did you have to develop your voice acting? Well, I'm still developing it. The wonderful thing about art forms is that you never stop working on it. Yeah, You're always trying to do it better, faster. You're always trying to give people a richer experience. Your storytelling, plus people's tastes change. The sound and the style or the flavor of storytelling changes. We don't talk the way we used to on the radio now. When I was a kid, and when you remember yep. radio commercials, people would sound like this, and they'd say, pick up a box today. You know, We don't sound that way unless we're trying to be funny. But back <laughs> then, they mean it. They, you know, they really were trying to get you to get that box of, of whiffos or whatever. So, uh, yeah, voice acting, I just, whether it's, I mean, I don't really know where the line, where the line is between talent and 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 an ability that one has gained through practice and interest i just know that i listened to um vocal performances with a lot of well, just a lot of interest and maybe my mom inspired me there too because she would play these records we had these uh, lps of various various storytellers uh alexander scorby was one of them there was um poems that we listened to and you know this was a different time and the the spoken word was something kind of theatrical that you could bring into your house and listen to on a record and you could have a magical experience because when a really good actor a really good storyteller tells a story it brings forth images in your mind and you go on a little adventure just like when you pick up a good book and those little black wiggly marks on the page are your ticket to a whole nother universe of stuff. And you feel like you're having experiences. You can have all these kind of rich aesthetic experiences, which is what why the arts are valuable, actually. Uh, so I remember my mom playing me and we, we would play the same records over and over again. So I got used to the idea that vocal performance and acting of that kind is valuable. It's, it's engaging. It's a way for people to, to help one another, uh, to entertain one another, to help pass the tedious hour, and to express oneself. And um, I had a really nice introduction to that. So all my life, I've just sort of, I've always kept an ear perked for, well, what's a really interesting vocal performance? When I hear people on the radio that I used to listen to talk radio incessantly as a kid, I didn't listen to the rock stations very much like a normal kid. I would listen to talk radio to hear people chatter and 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 how they express themselves. And it was... I don't know, partially living in a, a little bit of an isolated place in the suburbs where there aren't scads of people that you hear, not like New York City. But um, so I, I just kind of filled up and populated my world with different voices. And and for better, or for worse, that's uh, been a big part of my life. A lot of observation, isn't it? Yeah. And you have to be interested. Yeah, And, uh, you know, I love people. I, I'm very interested in people. I'm very interested in what they think and how they behave and the way they express themselves. And People are infinitely interesting. They are. And let's talk about the development of those skills and, and of voice acting and watching and listening and being genuinely interested in people. You mentioned about improv, doing improv work. And I know you do improv comedy. Uh, you also did improv commercials. Mm -hmm. How did and does your interest in observing people serve you when you're doing improv work? Well, when in my great uh, improv period in New York City, where I was improvising with uh, my group Interplay and with other actors all during the 80s and early 90s, uh, you know, it was New York City. So you, if you saw somebody on the street that had an interesting peculiarity, boy, you brought it right back to the theater as quick as you could. It was like uh, doing, you know, uh, investigation work. You know, you're bringing in all this evidence of life and character and and of course new york city is one of the great places to <laughs> observe humanity in all its uh incredible shadings and uh and peculiarities so i yeah i mean i i miss that about new york city i miss the fact that you you have humanity outside the door and you can just kind of look around and it's like being at a grand grand moving museum so gosh i learned so much and you learn about accents you learn about 
you know, these wonderful New Yorkers that you meet on the street who you think only exist in movies, but they don't. They exist. I'm telling you, you know, these marvelous kind of people uh, from all over the world, too. You meet people from Africa who are trying to so desperately to sell you an umbrella. Very important to them, to their livelihood, you know. You can and you can see those things like Larry Storch was a great uh, friend of mine, and um, he worked with my mom in a show. He just passed away last year. Yeah, I heard and, that. Uh, yeah, the great Larry Storch was I a great observer you. of humanity as well, and he he walked the streets of New York his whole life, and he would pick up these incredible characters, and you know, and you can blend characters. You can take one and give them other aspects of another person that you just saw, and. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's fun. Audiences love it. And it creates a lot of richness of characterization. Definitely. So you're with the improv commercials, you were out there sort of uh, interviewing people and getting this uh, improvised sort of uh, commercial that after speaking with a bunch of people about different things. And so you're out looking for people who just are going to be perfect for a certain situation or advertisement or whatever. But you also do improv comedy yourself. And one of the things I'm always interested in is that comedy is, I think, from what I see, it's a very, very difficult thing because when something's not funny, it's not funny, you know, and it's hard to solicit a, a laugh from something that's just not funny. But when you're, you've got the additional item of doing it off the top of your head or just, you know, working with the situation and the people in the room and having to think quickly, like, how is that? How does improvised comedy differ from regular comedy and as far as difficulty in your opinion? That's a very good question. Yeah, I well, the way I was trained in improv was very, very good, I think, uh, in, in that it um, steered the actors away in the training part of it, steered actors away from making jokes. And you might think, well, jokes. I mean, don't you want to don't you want to make audiences laugh? You do want to make audiences laugh, but there is a different kind of structure to a joke. And there's a, I'll make a distinction here that hopefully I'll say it well enough, but there's a difference between humor and jokes. Jokes are a kind of an artificial construction that, you know, they have a start, they develop a little bit and they have an ending. And the ending is usually something turned on its head. It's something unexpected and it's something that uh, the audience can reject believe it or not, they, they go, oh, that's ridiculous. Or, oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's not what I expected. Or, you know, and they laugh as a, as an expression of that rejection. And the problem with it in the world of improv is that a joke tends to stop everything. So you're going along and you're telling a story and you're interacting with other people. Somebody makes a joke and then boom, you're dead in the water because it's something ended. Now, there's certain kinds of improv that make use of that, and they do more kind of blackout sketches and, and things that do have a kind of an unnatural ending, or it's okay if it's abruptly, bang, we're out, that's it. But what we were trying to do with the improv that I was studying in the group that I was working with, we were trying to create a more theatrical form that didn't uh, suddenly put on the brakes, but continued and worked through different levels and explored different things was it, it also happened to be very funny because we used humor. Humor is more, and I don't have a good definition for humor here, but it's uh, it, it has to do with, um, you know, pleasant and unusual circumstances or points of view. And, you know, like when we see, let's let's use the, the show Friends, for example. Now, Friends contains a lot of jokes, for sure. It lives and dies on all those jokes. And those people work very hard, I can tell you. My sister was one of them. They work very hard to construct those brilliant little bits. But in order to keep the story going, you need something under that. And that, I think, is character, those relationships. And that's where humor enters in, you know, the way that Joey's character was. There's a lot of humor there, Chandler and Ross and uh, and the ladies, uh, Phoebe. And <laughs> I can't remember them all off the top of my head. Although I did, I did do an episode of it, um, but they develop a lot of, of humor because we we know what they're thinking and we know that they're going to come up with a joke, but we're enjoying their their point of view, you know, more than anything else. So in improv, what I discovered early on is that you know it's a, a beautiful revelation is that you can just sort of have a scene with two characters, 
And you can just make no effort at all to be funny, but just play the scene. And there will be inherently enough ridiculousness in it for an audience to, to chuckle and laugh and smile and have all the same kind of manifestations as if they were hearing a lot of jokes without the actual joke writing, uh, which is just a, a different kind of a different kind of creating. Uh, it's a different uh, goal. So I don't know. That's very complicated and very uh, not very funny. <laughs> I realize <laughs> nothing, nothing more boring than talking about humor. But, you know, I discovered that I, I was I'm not a great joke writer. I I, uh, I have written a few, but it's always very taxing. It's a very uh, it's a very specific activity. And the the great comedians that have made a fortune and made their careers like Jerry Seinfeld and others uh, by uh, crafting jokes, trying them out, taking them around, uh, honing them and uh, collecting them, you know, putting them together into a tight 10 or a, even a half an hour. Th these are people that are like scientists, you know, they, they postulate and hypothesize that this combination of ideas, if put in this order and said with these words at this tempo, will create the explosion that I desire of, of an audience's laughter. And then they try it out in the laboratory, which is a comedy club. And, and you know, it works. It doesn't work. Like you said, sometimes when it's not funny, boy, it's really not funny because everybody's there with one purpose to hear your funny joke. Exactly. And then, then you say something that is anything but funny. And they're like, wow, what am I doing here? My life is I, I'll never get those that minute and a half back. And it's <laughs> grim. Definitely. Now, I'm thinking about your comedy skills and your, your improv skills, but we've gotten a few flashes of it already here. But you do impressions brilliantly, by the way. And doing an impression really is another form of humor, isn't it? It can be. I mean, it's an art form. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's sounding like it's taking on the viewpoint of another known person, as, which is different from acting, where you're taking on the viewpoint of just a character. But, uh, you know, if I'm taking on a Groucho Marx's viewpoint, for example, all of a sudden I decided to try that on. Why? I don't know. But uh, something that came to mind and maybe it's because it's, I'm getting impatient about the whole thing. Uh, then I suddenly change the way that I hold my body. I change the kind of things that I'll say. And I'm looking at the world and relating to the world differently than I would natively. I'm doing it like I perceive uh, the character Groucho Marx might do it. And again, like Nick Offerman on Parks and Recreation. Suddenly, I'm uh, I'm in a different mood entirely, and I'll slow my tempo down, and I absolutely have to raise one eyebrow in disdain at whatever's being discussed. I love it. Now, when you started voice acting, were you starting to do impressions early on, or did the impressions come later? All at the same time, really. All at the same time. Yeah, I remember doing uh, children's stories, and I thought, oh, that character, we need three different voices here. So then you begin to catalog, well, what would be a good voice here? Maybe it's a kind of a Bing Crosby voice, and maybe this voice is a kind of a this voice or that voice. So, I, you know, I, I had facility at that point. When, once I started pursuing uh, my acting and voice acting, I had some control and facility, and I've been doing impressions as an amateur and just an interested person all, all my life at that point. I heard you do a, a brilliant Robert De Niro and a George W. Uh -huh. Bush. Can you give us a little sample? Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done De Niro for, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, the thing about um, Robert De Niro is, and you know, a lot of people notice this, uh, you know, his, his, mouth, his mouth is upside down. This is a, he's a handicapped. And he can park anywhere he wants. I mean, he could anyway, but still... And, uh, and George W. Bush is different because he's a different character. <laughs> he's a uh, Robert De Niro was never the president of of anything. <laughs> not even he's not even the president of Robert De Niro Industries, or maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> I should I should do my uh, my due diligence on that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That is fantastic. And what people don't see right now on the uh, on this Zoom call, this is, people are listening audio. Uh, is you do the facial expressions equally as well as you do the voice. It's amazing. It looked like somebody superimposed De Niro's face onto onto your body, Jim, and and well, the GW Bush. 
Yeah, thank you. That's kind of that's what kind of what happens. I mean, you just sort of if you become that person very fully, you start to resemble them. And it's a little bit of an illusion, too, because your mind's eye or the viewer's mind's eye is sort of filling in and, and making an adjustment uh, based on what they're hearing, I think. Although on, on several of my uh, videos uh, using the deep fake technology, we push it even more by using digital stuff to make it indeed like a mask. Yeah, that's cool. Now, let's talk about acting. You you have been in a, a number of things on TV. I know you were in The Fresh uh, Prince of Bel-Air, which was a mm -hmm. very, very famous show in its time. You were also in five Ron Howard movies, I think. Am I mm -hmm. correct in that? Yeah, so far five. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm, for hoping for ten. <laughs> hoping for ten, definitely. Now, I gotta say this. I gotta, I, I gotta say that the Grinch, the Jim Carrey <clears throat> Grinch, the Ron Howard movie, uh, is one of our family favorites. It's an <clears throat> annual event. As a matter of fact, every year our family actually we started it last year and we did it last year and this year we're going to keep doing it is that we all throw into a hat our favorite Christmas movies and then we select one and that whatever that movie is we have to bake something that has the theme of that movie. Oh, nice. So, last year it was Home Alone 2 and my wife and I made the the Plaza Hotel out of a cake oh and my it was 35 pounds and it, it didn't taste that good, but it looked good. <laughs> well, you know, the, if it's any consolation, the actual Plaza Hotel doesn't taste very good either. <laughs> and and we did the Grinch this year. Huh? We had to watch it before we, we figured out what it was we were going to make. We ended up making the Chair of Cheer sweater cookies. Ah. But we watched the movie, except this time I knew we would be interviewing you. So we watched for you in the movie. And you were the police presence in the movie, you were the chief of police, you were police officer Houlihan, correct? Houlihan, officer Houlihan, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we always remember you with your famous line when you, uh, with the Grinch says, cuff, are you going to cuff me? And what do you respond to that? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm, I'm testing your improv. Yeah, actually, right. I get the question. Well, that's not improv. I, I can make I, up something. I'll, was I'll that where you. I say, where I was, I say, well, no, he said he's sorry. That was it. He said that was he it. Okay. So let me, I'll rephrase. Are you going to cuff me? Oh, he said he was sorry. That's it. So, so really, my question really was when when the Grinch uh, was asking to be cuffed, and I'm sure the mayor of Whoville was hoping that he would be, but you That's being right. the police presence and you, you realized that he had said he was sorry, and that was the important part. But That's right. <laughs> you were in a lot of scenes in that movie. You had a few speaking roles, but you were also in a lot of scenes. What was it like on the set of that magical movie? Well, it was it was a pretty pleasant place to hang out. Um, you know, it was an arduous kind of a job. I had to get up. We all all the actors had to get up around four or five in the morning to make it to set, to go into three hours of makeup and then get on stage by 9 a.m. So you had to do that every day. And I worked for four months. A lot of us worked for four months or longer. Uh, on that show so christmas lasted a good long time that year as we started off in august and and all through december but it was a wonderful place to hang out even though it was you know we were often kind of tired and and so forth but you know the set was a great creation uh the, the stage where we we had several large stages at universal the largest stage contained the whoville set which was designed by a guy named michael cornblith and it was constructed in a really gravity-defying way. Uh, they used technology that they borrowed, I think, from the uh, the makers of parade floats in the, the Pasadena Rose Bowl Parade. I know they consulted with those guys to make things that looked like they defied gravity, buildings in this case, you know, so that they had this uh, wonderful armature underneath it that they could construct these towering weird shapes to emulate uh, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss's uh, wonderful designs. And then the costumes were another level because the costumes also were, were done by Rita Ryak and they were extraordinarily wrought, just beautifully done and designed and art directed to the nines. You know, there was little tchotchkes on things and button the buttons were made and the cuffs and the fabrics 
uh, everything was super creative. And the shoes, we wore these gigantic shoes. I had, I wish I had those shoes because they were like a size 50 shoe. <laughs> and they were a lot of fun to put on, you know, when I would be in my makeup trailer or in my uh, my dressing room trailer before work and I'd put on these shoes and, and I would just sort of feel my good fortune. It's like, here is my job today. It involves me putting on these shoes. I'm it. doing something right with my life, you know? And then you had the makeup to observe. Uh, if you were sitting around bored, you could just look at your fellow actors and see the artistry of these wonderful designs. Because uh, Rick Baker, the the much celebrated and much awarded makeup designer, worked with a great team of people and they created these great characters that involved, we, we had to wear these prosthetics on our faces, over our ears. We had long eyelashes and uh, wigs and a lot of us had mustaches and beards and uh, you know all of that is is the decision of artists they figure out you know this is what this character should look like and and speaking of that my own character of Houlihan went through quite a lot of changes in the development phase and i had again a, a good, the good fortune of you know being invited in many many times to Rick Baker's studio where they tried out different makeups on me and I got to meet a lot of those artists and I got to hang out with Rick and his incredible studio called Cinovation, which which he's he's retired from. He no longer exists. But, oh, my God, it was this magical kingdom of for me as an artist, too, as a painter, as a, as a sculptor myself. I, I had deep, deep appreciation of that environment and how well he worked with other artists and mold makers and wig makers and this whole team of people. So, um so you could just look around on the set and you could see all these. It was like being in a, a an art gallery with moving, living works of art around you who also had ideas and also were funny and, and entertaining. We had all different kinds of people. We had actors, of course. We also had stunt people. We had circus people. We had people from all different disciplines. Uh, and so I got to I, I made a lot of friends on the set and, and we were there for forever, you know, and the movie did turn out the way we wanted it to. I, we all hoped it would become a kind of a, a holiday classic. So it's nice to hear that your family enjoys it. We do. We love it. What I did, what I did this year was I sat through the entire credits after the movie. Oh, of course, they a lot play, of people. Yeah, a lot of people. They play beautiful music, but I wanted to watch it just to get an idea of what it took and who it took to make mm. that movie. And you know, you're you're one of, of of a lot of people in that movie, and the tremendous amount of talent that that you have uh, participating in that, and to think of how many other people with a, with a wide range of talents are all selected specifically for jobs uh, on the you know these are this is what you're going to do, and they do it to their utmost, you know. And I just yeah. sat through right to the very end, and I thought, wow, that movie's incredible, and it it reminds me of. We interviewed, I think it was about a year and a half ago, a lady who's now in her 90s who was a child uh, munchkin on The mm. Wizard of Oz. She didn't have a speaking role, but uh, she, we interviewed her and she told us a little bit about her recollections as a seven-year-old on the mm. set of The Wizard of Oz. And I kind of get the same idea of the magic and the colors. And I, I really think it must be great for you to recall those days. It it is and and you know a soundstage is a is a sort of an interesting magical box where human beings create these these crazy worlds and uh, I remember the experience of having worked on a set like like the Grinch or even Apollo thirteen for that matter which was also shot at Universal. And you go every day to that soundstage, and that reality is there, and it looks very solid, and it looks very believable and convincing. Whether it's a gigantic snow-covered mountain, or a little town, or a mission control, it's designed to look very, very convincing. And then the day you're done with that movie, they rip it all out. <laughs> it's gone, and you're like, oh, there's a kind of a sadness. And yet you come back in another three days and there's another completely different construction in there. It's a jungle land or it's a factory or some unimagined world that is put in there. 
So these these sound stages are, are so magical to me. They still, when I go to a when I go to a, a lot, you know, Paramount or Warner Brothers or Universal, where I was just the, at the other day, uh, you know, you peer in those massive doors, and you just really don't know what you're going to find. And even if they build something, it is so temporary. And, and the, the the people that work there in construction and and set design and so forth, they are just so. Uh, in inured to uh, nostalgia they they don't care <laughs> when that when that job is over they just take out the screwdrivers they pull the whole thing to pieces and toss it all in the trash and start over again it's very very magical fortunately it's memorialized in film which is is wonderful yeah. now you you obviously were a you were a sort of a serious character in a funny situation in the grinch uh but you also had to play a very serious role of course in apollo 13 i was a you know, a near tragedy, actually. And uh, yeah, you were in that. And what was your role in that movie? Tell us about that. Well, I was one of many men who were in mission control. So I portrayed a guy who was in charge of the uh, the lunar excursion modules, electrical and environmental systems. And uh, we actually did quite a bit of study on the various jobs in mission control. We were given all kinds of great research material by by the production, by Ron Howard's team. Uh, we listened to uh, uh, recordings of of the time of the, the conversations between Mission Control Houston and the capsule and the command module. And uh, so we had an idea of the kind of things they would do. Plus, we had two consultants on the set who had been young men at the time and had been there uh, on the day. And so if you had a question or, or you were curious about something, you could always walk up to one of the Jerry's. They were both both named Jerry, as it happened. And uh, we we would ask them, you know, hey, what what is what is this thing for on this console, or what would you do in this case, or do you remember what ha what happened, uh, and what you happen to be doing? So it was nice to have that reference and to learn about a subject which I, about which I knew nothing, uh, the space program and aeronautics and that sort of thing. And it was fascinating. So many uh, little things go into getting a guy on the moon uh, or a person, and with the amount of uh, computer power that they had back then, we were always talking about that because the uh, the guys from uh, from uh, Houston they would say, "Yeah, you've got more memory in your car than we had uh, in all of NASA at that point." Uh, so they would have these massive rooms full of computers whirring along to crunch numbers and data that now, of course, we have it on on a single app in our iPhone. So it was a great learning experience. And I think it's a great example of a movie that's fun to watch, even though it's serious. And even though you know the ending, you can watch it over and over again because it's such a great retelling of that story. And it's a hell of a challenge. It's like, wow, we we did it. It was almost a terrible tragedy. I mean, you can imagine if we had not pulled that off, if the, if the people at NASA had not figured it out, that we would have three corpses floating around the planet right now in in uh, in orbit it would be kind of grim yeah. so um it was a great great project i'm so proud uh, to be a small part of it definitely and the like your improv work like your artwork you had to learn you had to learn almost on the job like you had to, you had to how am i going to speak like a mission control guy i can't just sort of sit there and you know, exactly. Look. Yeah. Speaking of that, that reminds me of another embarrassing moment on the set for me, because I, I didn't have a lot of lines, but there was a scene coming up where I did have some lines. And when we started to run it, I had sort of in my mind, I'd created a Texan guy like this. It almost sounded like George W. Bush was not in the political realm right then, but it did sound a lot like George W. Bush. Uh, but anyway, as I in the rehearsal, I sprang that on Ron and, and he said, yeah, uh, you know, Jim, we, we've already got a, a couple of guys uh, in the scene, they're talking, you know, with that accent. If you could just tone that down a little bit, just to get a flavor of that. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I overdid it. All right. So my guy speaks very, very light Texas accent, hardly anything at all. Well, that's cool. Do you know, I haven't seen Apollo 13. So that is, that's next on my movie list. So uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I'll be looking for you. Now let's talk about video games. So I understand you do a lot of voice work for video games now. Like it's a it's a huge thing. What kind of work do you do there? Well, again, it's it's like a vocal performance. So I, although I have done the full on motion capture suit 
physical performing part of video games. It's not really something I've done much of. And and frankly, you know, I, I'm very happy to leave that to other actors. I really like being in front of a microphone and creating a character completely vocally. I like that a lot. I've done a quite a few, but not it's not my main gig. But when they come up, I, I enjoy doing video games. The other thing that's kind of weird about it that I think about all the time is that, you know, I'm not a gamer. I'm not a game player myself. I don't have a, I don't have the equipment. I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, video games when we were growing up were quite a different affair and and it was easier to grasp it. So I'm constructing these characters that I construct and these performances that I do uh, kind of divorced from a lot of the process. I don't actually it's like it would be like being a, a stage actor but you've never actually been on a stage. <laughs> like I got I, it. I think I know what I'm doing, but uh, you know, I I hope I do. I hope people enjoy it, and I hear from people that they do. So so that's good. It's it's just like any other kind of acting. You're storytelling. You're portraying a character. You're trying to do it in a compelling, entertaining way, but you're not. Uh, the scripts are very different. The process is different in this way. You know, you have a scene with another bunch of characters, and it might go five or six different ways depending on what the, the player chooses. So you have conversations like, like a character will say, don't enter this cave or I'll, I'll have to incinerate you or you have entered the cave, congratulations, or you're in the wrong cave. You know, it, it'll vary and you'll do all these different versions of it. The script looks like a spreadsheet. It doesn't look like a, you know, something that you'd read in a play. It's, it's not the first folio. It's uh, it's like a just long laundry list of things that you have to go go through and do. So sometimes it takes hours and hours and hours to portray a character because of all the different possibilities that that character might encounter. Yeah, I'm thinking it's funny you talk about video games. Do you remember Pong? Sure. Pac-Man, those things like that. It was uh, that's as far as I go. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what you're doing now, Jim. I know. You actually have set up some, you've got online courses about becoming a working actor. How did that concept come up? Well, I like to share my successful actions with people. I get people asking me all the time, hey, I want to, should I, thinking about getting into voice acting, I'm thinking about being a, a TV actor. You know, I think a lot of us during the pandemic got faced with the idea that, well, if I'm going to do what I, 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 you know, but it seems like the time is running out. I need to do what I have always dreamed of doing. And people started to get into action on it as much as they could. So I created a series of videos and eBooks that are my, basically my, my best actions, the things that I do to keep working uh, and the way, the, the ways that I've built a career and, uh, and kept it moving over the long haul. And it's stuff that I learned from my mom. It's something that I learned, things that I learned from my own experience uh, moving forward. And from other actors too, observing things that they did that worked. Uh, it's not an acting class per se. I'm not teaching acting. That's a whole different uh, study. But it's just in if you are an actor and you want to build your career and you want to keep working and you want to explore different things, uh, how do you manage your life? How do you, you know, how do you manage auditions? Do you need an agent? How do you get an agent? Where does that start? What are the various steps that someone needs to do? And I shared to the best of my ability, you know, my best practices regarding that. I think that's great that you're sharing those experiences and your talents with other people. That That's great. What about your one-man show, Jim Pressions? What, what's going on with that? Well, uh, 10 years ago, I wrote a show so, so that I could uh, start to reach out and just kind of perform for people and demonstrate my abilities. And uh, I... I was in Los Angeles where it's very difficult to find an audience. It's very difficult to get people out to the theater. It's not built into the Los Angeles culture very well. And as time goes on, I think it gets harder and harder. <laughs> Fewer people have even heard of what the theater is. So um, I created a, a video. I thought, well, you know, I'll do a video of a part of my show and I'll put it on YouTube and maybe that'll help get some people in. And the video I created was a thing I do called uh, Shakespeare and Celebrity Voices. And it's a speech from Richard III that I do in 24 different celebrity voices, all in one take, very seamless and uh, very entertaining. And that video went viral uh, at a time when, for me, I hadn't had many, many viral hits. So 
It's uh, and that filled my theater and uh, kept me busy and created a lot of opportunities for me, including America's Got Talent and uh, a TV series that I started in called Impress Me with Ross Marquand. So by just sort of getting busy and creating a show and then promoting that show, I created a you know this trajectory of the, the next uh, 10 and 11 years of of opportunities and 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 things and uh and and build a career that I probably should have done you know in the 80s but we didn't have the internet back then or if we did it was wrapped up somewhere in somebody's basement yeah so Jim Pressions is an outgrowth of that and uh, I have to uh, I'm I'm writing I'm rewriting it now because it's of course it was a pre-pandemic uh, script and now it has to be a post-pandemic script but I'm looking forward to touring with it again soon in and the meantime I'm feeding YouTube and TikTok and putting all kinds of content up and trying out different things and seeing what what it is that people enjoy that is great I'm so glad to hear that you know I see also that you also do the voice of Colonel Sanders that's right I've been doing the voice of Colonel Sanders now for about six years for the KFC brand on their uh, commercials and advertising and different things. And that's something I remember because in the back in the day, uh, Colonel Harlan Sanders used to do his own commercials. So I'm probably absorbed, uh, you talk about content, I uh, probably absorbed uh, well, dozens or hundreds of hours of Colonel Sanders content just by virtue of being a kid watching TV. <laughs> I love it. And I'm thinking now, as we're emerging out of COVID and all that, so are you are you going to be on the road a lot? I don't know. I, I imagine I will be, uh, I know I'm going back to Atlanta to continue working on a TV show that I'm working on called the big door prize. And I hope to, I just got back from New York city where I was working on uh, another couple of shows. So, you know, I, travel has always been a big part of my, my career. I don't have a, uh, a tour booked or anything like that. And I don't know if that's really feasible or not. Uh, I'll have to kind of see, but uh, I, I enjoy getting in front of audiences, but I also am, pretty hot on concentrating on television and film right now and and really digging into that world a little heavier so i'll probably stay in town uh and then do stuff do stuff online you know i saw a clip of uh, a show that you're you've been in recently called gaslit you did a great job oh thank you yeah that was a that was a really fun project that's on stars and i got to play a, a senator senator edward gurney and i worked with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. So you can't get much better than that. It was a great experience. So how can people find out more about you and your Jim Pressions and your online courses? How can people, you know, learn more about Jim Meskimen? Well, thanks. Uh, well, I'm at jimmeskimen.com. That's my uh, general website. But for the course, if you have anybody in your life that's interested in uh, in working as an actor or you or maybe you're an actor yourself and you want to uh, move things forward or keep going or just make a new beginning, uh, you can go to jimworkingactor.com, jimworkingactor.com. And then I'm on TikTok at Jim Meskimen and Instagram, Jim Pressions at Jim Pressions and uh, my YouTube channel. By the way, I'm going to be uh, doing different interviews with different uh, celebrities on my YouTube channel as well. I've got one with Rich Little coming up. Uh, and um, those will be there. And then I, I always, I have daily videos up uh, that we put uh, with impressions and all kinds of different content that we experiment with. So there's a lot, there's a lot there on the socials where you can find me. That is great. I remember Rich Little when I was a kid, he did a great Richard Nixon. I remember that one. Yeah, that was a big one. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, if you could look back and if you could select a mentor in your life who kind of impacted you significantly who would that be well there have been quite a few in my life i'm lucky i mentioned jules bass who was kind enough to hire me my mother definitely you know if, if a mother can be said to be a, a mentor she certainly did uh so i've been lucky enough to encounter some brilliant minds who were generous and uh had my best interests at heart and i i meet people all the time i had a uh, recently, there was a man who was my uh, physical trainer, a guy named Eric the Trainer, unfortunately passed away recently, but um, he helped me tremendously with mastering uh, some some exercise techniques that I definitely needed to have. 
So yeah, I think you meet people along the way that help you, especially if you're looking and if you're trying to improve yourself, if you're trying to set a good example with your life, you, you know, those people come to you. And if you're aware of it, then you can make friends with them and engage with them and, and learn what they have to say. And then in return, you know, you like to express things to other people and let other people know. I, I get people, young actors and, and uh, people in the arts who contact me all the time and they say, hey, how do, how do I get into this? How do I persevere and, and succeed? And that's, that's why I, I created jimworkingactor.com to sort of give back. You know, it's, it sounds sort of corny, but you, you do want to give back. You can't just accept things all the time and, and have favors done for you. You definitely want to exchange with other people. And that's what I want to do. That's terrific. Last question. What do you want your legacy to be, Jim? It's a great question. I think you told, I think you asked me this in the, in the pre-interview <laughs> and I was, I was supposed <laughs> yeah. to come up with something. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think I'm going to leave behind some performances that hopefully will always bring a lot of value to a story. So in the Ron Howard films that you've mentioned, uh, you know, they're just little moments. Uh, there's a legacy there. I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to leave the world a little better in as many ways as I can. My daughter is uh, a bit of my legacy. She's uh, also a, an artist and an actress and a voice artist. So she will continue on, you know, the, what, what I've begun to some degree and also embellish it with her own, her own uh, additions. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, legacy is a, is a big word and it's, it's a little too daunting for me. I, if I can make the world a little bit better and set a good example and uh, for others uh, so that they have a happier, more fruitful life, then I think that would be plenty. Well, you're doing that right now, Jim, because your talents are making people laugh making people think and enjoying, you know, really what you've really worked very hard to do. And that's perfecting your mini crafts and making people laugh. So Jim, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us at Your History, Your Story. And I know people are going to enjoy this interview. Thank you, James. Thanks for the gracious interview. I appreciate it. Well, have a great holiday season. I've enjoyed talking to you. Maybe we'll talk next year. Oh, absolutely. I would love that. Thanks a lot, Jim. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.